Well, welcome everybody to Roadmap to Joy. Super, super privileged today to have our guest with us, Liz Lees. She's a registered dietitian with an expertise in eating disorders. We're going to be talking about eating disorders today. Such a prevalent thing in our society. It is. Holy it cow. It absolutely is. Yeah. So obviously you've, you've seen a need and uh, we're addressing that in your workplaces, doorways, maybe just talk a little bit about where you work would be fantastic. For yeah, you. absolutely. Yeah. So Doorways Counseling Center is a um, outpatient mental health clinic um, specializing in adolescent care. So specifically there, the majority of my clients I work with are going to be in the teenage age range with suffering from various types of eating disorders. Okay, great. Great. Mm -hmm. And that's here in Arizona? Yep, located right in central Phoenix. Oh, fantastic. Well, we're so privileged to have Liz. Um, eating disorders, we wanted to be able to address this because just want to talk about a little bit of the statistics um, in preparing for our time together. This was just fascinating to me that uh, we're going to talk about ED today. We don't want to mistake that with anything else, but it's really eating disorder yes. when we talk about that. Yes, not emergency department, not anything else not anything <laughs> for the else. context of today. Yeah, great. So we're <laughs> going to be using this term ED, but it really stands for eating disorder. And some of the facts, just the statistics are pretty staggering, but eating disorder affects nearly 10% of the population worldwide. Is that surprising to you, Liz, or...? No, it's no. not. I mean, it's it's an alarming statistic, and it's alarming because it's so misunderstood still. There's such a lack of knowledge out there in our general population within healthcare providers even. And so for such a high number, you would think there would be a lot more understanding of it. Well, and I'm excited to talk today because I think, like you're saying, there's just not a lot of knowledge around it. Mm -hmm. Many people who hear of eating disorder might think of anorexia or just bulimia, but every day, a little bit of different twist on things, different strains. We're seeing different variations of that. We're labeling things. So I'm ecstatic to have you today to kind of clear up some of this stuff for us. Yeah, thank so, you. Yeah, so we have 10% of the population worldwide is affected by an eating disorder. Nearly 30 million Americans will have an eating disorder in their lifetime. Wow. That's a big number. 30 million. Wow. Oh, my gosh. This was really quite staggering to me. 10,200 deaths occur each year as the direct result of an eating disorder. Yeah. it For a while, it was number one. I believe it's moved on to the number two um, highest cause of mortality within mental health conditions. That is, um, they broke it down, one every 52 minutes. Wow. I haven't heard that statistic, and that that's... Wow. <laughs> One person every hour, basically, right. as the direct result of an eating disorder. So I'm it's glad serious. we're all tuning in today because yeah. this, this affects us. The economic cost of eating disorders is nearly $65 billion a year. It's a big number. It's a big number. So I'm really glad that we're talking about some of this stuff. So we're going to be talking about um, treatment. We're going to talk about things just to gain some knowledge. What can we identify, especially if we're parents and we have these adolescents, young adults? What can we look for? Uh, it's important to talk about treatment. So a, a few stats. Over 50% of individuals with eating disorders meet criteria for depression and anxiety. Yes. I mean, it's eating disorders themselves are a psychological condition. There tends to be so much overlap with co comorbidities of depression, anxiety, other mood disorders, um, 
So absolutely, it plays a huge role into eating disorders and how they're treated. And I would love to talk a little bit about shame, right? Shame associated with all this. I can't imagine that's a huge part of the whole treatment process. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's still so much taboo with, with especially within certain maybe cultures or family dynamics about even talking about, especially maybe even looking in male populations. Yes. So underserved as far as getting treatment. And a lot of that comes down to that word shame. And I think many of us uh, think of, oh, this is primarily a, a feminine issue. Yeah. I hear that all the time still today that, oh, this only affects girls. And it's absolutely just not true. It's not true. It's not true at all. We're seeing such a growing emergence in subpopulations. I mean, eating disorders do not discriminate by (laughs) socioeconomic status, race, gender, sexual orientation. In fact, we're seeing growing number of these subpopulations being diagnosed. And it's not that there's necessarily this bigger emergence of it happening, but rather maybe we're starting to catch and recognize it a little bit more than we used to. Let's talk a little bit about treatment. Some stats are only one in 10 individuals with an eating disorder actually receives treatment. Wow, that's low. It's unfortunate. Yeah, one-tenth. One-tenth, yeah. This entire population is actually receiving treatment. Only 35% of those who receive treatment for ED are treated by a specialized program or professional in this field. Gosh, yeah, and you know, I think a big part of that comes down to, again, kind of talking how eating disorders aren't discriminating by my economic privileges or disadvantages, and treatment can get very costly. And so I think a lot of that can play a role into just the affordability for a lot of families to undergo treatment and get that specialized care team. Well, we're going to talk about it a little bit later because I would like to build on this specialization kind of, you know, if you had a, a transmission issue on your car, I don't. you might take it to a mechanic, but you're wanting somebody to focus on that specifically, right? Right. To make sure they have expertise or I have a heart condition. I'm going to go to the Mayo Clinic. Maybe just touch a little bit about why is a specialization important, especially if I'm a generalized therapist. I, can I send my child who might have an eating disorder to a general therapist and they're going to talk about anxiety, depression? Is, is a specialization important? Is talking about that specific issue, is addressing that issue important from your standpoint, really? Yeah. So, I mean, my analogy that I love to provide is if we look at doctors with different specialties, if my kid got diagnosed with cancer, awful, would I take them to a general pediatrician or would I go and find a pediatric oncologist to help treat that specific condition? It's the same thing with eating disorders. You need a team that truly understands the complexities that are an eating disorder to be able to address it and potentially you know, not do more harm, as I can see that in, in some instances. If we don't know as, as healthcare providers what to even look for in eating disorders or the do's and don'ts of communication are huge, mm. we can potentially do more harm if we just don't fully understand the condition. So absolutely, a, a specialized care team is important. Uh, similar to doorways. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. terrific. 
Well, Liz, thank you for that. If uh, Let's go ahead and jump into some of these questions. I'm so glad that you're with us today. Uh, could we just maybe just even define a general sense of eating disorder? What is it? How do we define it? How do I know that it's there if I'm just a general parent? What, what do I look out for? That would be really helpful. And that's a great question. So there's various types of eating disorders. Um, some of the, the more commonly known ones are going to be binge eating disorder, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa. Um, a newer emerging one is ARFID, which stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. We're going to see different signs, symptoms in each of these types of eating disorders, of course. But, you know, a big red flag for parents can be sudden change in, in weight, especially as their teen is growing and developing. Uh, either way. Either way, absolutely, you got it. That's a yeah, great clarifier. I mean, it could be, oh my gosh, my teen has suddenly gained 50 pounds in the last six months, or the opposite way, oh my gosh, my teen has suddenly dropped 20 pounds, yet they're still growing up vertically. Mm-hmm. Um, those can be big, big red flags that parents and healthcare providers should be looking out for, especially as they come in for annual visits if we see a sudden huge decline on a, on a growth curve. You know, that that's should be a huge red flag for for a care team and often goes missed. So just to break these up, just have some clarity. So to categorize them is, you know, we have anorexia, which is defined by... So anorexia, um, you know, we have specifics of the DSM-5 criteria that would be diagnosed by a medical provider, a therapist, for instance. Um, But to speak in more generalities, you know, there's generally going to be a preoccupation with maintaining a low body weight or a desire to lose weight to a low body weight, coupled with distorted beliefs and views towards food, restrictive type behaviors towards foods. Um, Bulimia is going to be, within the criteria, diagnosed more as they might be more of a normal body weight, Mm -hmm. not always. but we're going to see periods of binging, meaning eating large quantities of food, followed by some sort of compensatory measure to get rid of that food, whether that be self-induced vomiting, laxative abuse, mm. um, diet pills, diuretics. Gotcha. Yeah. So In all the- of them, you know, the commonality shared there, of course, is just distorted beliefs, thoughts, feelings towards food and body image. Um Whereas with binge eating disorder, for example, there's not there there's episodes of binge eating without any kind of compensatory measurement followed afterwards. There's no purging, for instance. Gotcha. So that's super helpful to separate them out. If I'm a parent, what what are some things that I'm just looking for? I mean, my child's going to school, they're coming home. Am I looking for little indicators? Is there a change in attitude towards food? Is there different foods that are I'm wanting to consume? Is it high carbs? I mean, well, maybe some shed some light on that, Liz, if you could. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it comes down to, again, that subtype of, of eating disorder of what we might be looking for. If parents notice, like, I just went grocery shopping and, and all the food is now out of the missing out of the pantry, that can be a big, big red flag for episodes of binge eating or perhaps you know I notice mannerisms at the dinner table of my child really moving their food around a lot not taking small bites just very very different behaviors towards towards their food than I maybe noticed before coupled with you mentioned a great one like being more withdrawn perhaps all of a sudden 
they're self-isolating a lot more. Their, their mood is just not quite, you know, it doesn't feel like my child anymore. Would we see a pattern of, if we had some bulimia-type behavior, would there be a pattern of eating and then maybe excusing themselves to the restroom right after? Or Absolutely, like yeah. There tends to be a lot of secrecy with that might be food hiding. Mm-hmm. Yes, then if that, that behavior after eating is purging or self-induced vomiting, absolutely excusing themselves to go to the bathroom, taking very long showers, mm-hmm. maybe going on long walks after after a meal or, you know, it's just, and I always tell parents, like, listen to your gut. You know, as a parent, we have this gut intuition, and if something just doesn't feel right, you know, follow through on that. Well, and I'm wondering, in your experience, too, is that I'm hearing a greater amount as this eating disorder becomes more of an epidemic, if you will. Absolutely, Is there more of a normalizing of it? Like, oh, mom, this is what the girls are doing, or we eat less, or we do this, or are you seeing any of this more normalizing of of eating patterns or, you know, dieting and trying to be thin? Yeah, I mean, I think COVID brought, I've had countless of my patients tell me about, I think a lot of this emerges from social media, right, of oh, how to not gain weight during COVID and how to be healthy and eat healthy during COVID. And I think a lot of the eating disorders that have just spiked over the last few years have been partly in response to these messages that we're seeing in social media and maybe started out innocently enough, but with that right cocktail of genetic factors, personality traits, maybe comorbidity, mental health conditions, that it kind of creates this perfect storm for the development of an eating disorder because eating disorders go beyond just food and body image issues, right? I mean, they, they are psychological conditions. Well, I really like your emphasis in that paradigm shift because I wonder if how many of us feel like, oh, it's just about what you put in your mouth. Yeah. It's much more complicated. It's much more complicated. And, and you know, I think that's good insights for parents to have. It's not just about like, hey, just sit down and eat your food to your child. That's that's not the problem, right? I mean, it, it is in the sense that they aren't eating in a, in a lot of cases if we're looking at more restrictive type eating disorders, but the problem exists beyond just being able to sit and eat. Just to sh- shift gears a little bit, I'm so fortunate to have you here as a dietitian, as a registered dietitian, because I'd love for you to speak sometimes as a therapist, as a psychotherapist myself. I'm like, well, if we could cognitively work it out or we could rethink some of the things, which is great. I wonder if there's a piece about literally how is your body responding when you're either cramming it full of carbs and overloading it or depriving it? How is your mental clarity? How is your anxiety? I mean, from a dietary point of view, how does a disordered eating really impact your you physiologically, cognitively? Does my question make sense? Absolutely, no. And this is a huge piece. I'm big on education yeah, as a great, dietitian. Great. All my patients get education. Um, but a big one is talking about the complications, the metabolic emotional, physiological complications that occur from eating disorders. So, you know, like I mentioned before, a lot of my population tends to be more on the restrictive eating behavior side of things. More of my my patients tend to have anorexia. And with that, the effects of starvation, your body's essentially in a starved state, 
they're widespread. It's affecting every body system. So, you know, I really definitely hone in on brain health, for instance, like you mentioned. So imagine our brain relies on on nutrients to maintain normal function, to think, to process, to have complex reasoning, to manage emotions. And when I'm depriving my brain of that adequate nutrition, it can't provide, it can't do all its brain functions, right? I, I mean, it just can't. And so we see higher increases in, in reported anxiety levels, uh-huh. potentially increases in depression levels as that restriction worsens. We see, um, you know, we mentioned before, just that self-isolation. So mm-hmm. there's just limited capacity to really connect with other people when I'm so depleted nutritionally. Yeah. So that's some things to be really aware of as a parent is this has, we need to look at it in a holistic way. Oh, absolutely. It's much more complicated than it's just here, eat this at these regular hours. There's hormonal effects. There's control issues. I mean, there's a number of complexities happening um, with the person who's really struggling with this. Absolutely. That could be trauma that no one's aware of that's happened. I mean, that's, mm. that's a big piece for many. Yeah. So if I'm a parent and I have some suspicions of my child doing this, what should I do to support them? But like, do I immediately call a therapist? Do I hide all the scales in the house? What what do we do if we're a parent? And uh, I'm just not sure what's happening with my child. I would say first and foremost, if you have any kind of intuition, something's not quite right around my child and, and eating habits, get them evaluated, bring them in to meet with a dietitian, with a therapist that are both skilled in eating disorders, and additionally, um, a medical provider, especially if we have concerns for, poor, you know, starvation type of, of behaviors, right? I mean, it can have life-threatening consequences. So, yes, absolutely. Bring them in, get them evaluated by the team of professionals that knows what to look for, and that's a great place to start. How, how do I... So we get them the help. I do that. I mean, let's really talk practically. Mm-hmm. It, my, I would imagine somebody who is struggling with an eating disorder is probably a little defended, uh, a little bit guarded, struggling with anxiety and depression, so it has multiple feelings. They might be accessible to treatment, but they also might be, especially adolescents, resistant to parents. Nothing's wrong with me. I don't want to do this, blah, blah, blah. How do I be supportive of my child and get them in a positive way for us to get evaluated? I'll tell you, probably half the people that come to me don't want to be there Uh, (laughs) on the first session when I assess them. And they're open about it. And I totally respect that openness and honesty. The sense of denial that there is a problem is huge, right? Our brain does a really good job at trying to defend our thoughts and our beliefs, even when they become very distorted. In the case of eating disorders, there's lots of cognitive distortions going on. And we want to protect ourselves and say, like, this is normal. This is rational. I don't know what everyone else is trying to tell me. So, yeah, that that definitely happens. And I think it's the parents' responsibility to, to, you know, to still really encourage this, hey, treatment's important and I need you to go here. Hey, if I have medical concerns for you, you're underweight, you're passing out, your heart rate's potentially lowered, because mm. these are all, can be 
absolute consequences of restrictive eating disorders that I'm going to bring them to a doctor, even if they're kicking and screaming because I'm worried about their medical safety. I don't see how it's much different in the terms of getting the right therapy and, and nutritional restoration. Yeah. It's, I mean, a eating disorder treatment takes a full team of professionals. It's not just one person. And that team of professionals includes parents. They're part of the treatment team. Oh, I love what you're saying. So just just to clarify, Liz, I really appreciate what you're saying is that when it comes to the safety, when it comes to basic safety needs, those should be really non-negotiables for parents. Absolutely. Like, boy, your health is at risk. We're seeing this as a potential. We have to go get you that assessment, that care. That can be done if those are non-negotiables. It can be done with a tremendous amount of compassion, right? Absolutely. And compassion, I love that you use that word. Mm. Compassion is so crucial because often I see parents reacting in more anger, right, which is a normal response. If my kid's not doing what I think they need to be, I get angry. We need to take a step back and remember how much of a mental struggle this is internally for your child, whether or not they're telling you about it, it absolutely is. Uh And so showing that compassion that, hey, I understand this is tough for you. However, it's still really important. And being my other C I love to mention is consistency, right? It's that Uh consistent message uh, day to day of treatment is important. Getting you rehabilitated is important nutritionally, medically, emotionally. I I like to use the word empathy. Empathy yeah. within the midst of this compassion because the have as a parent taking an empathetic stance is, boy, if I'm you and I'm going through this and it's not necessarily about the food, but boy, this is a challenging time in your life and I might be feeling I'm wanting acceptance or I might be feeling rejected. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on adolescents and young adults these days with social media to look yeah. a certain way, to have X amount of friends, to be performing at a certain level. I just wonder, I mean, all that's contributing as an apparent to take an empathetic stance embraces them and actually it communicates it's not just a thinking error. Right. The eating disorder is much more complicated for the child, the young adult, than here, let's just change the way you're thinking about food. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's one piece of the puzzle, but it's with many other. So, yeah, that's such a great point. Yeah. Uh, just a few more questions that some parents had, Liz. Um if I'm a parent and I suspect that this some sort of struggle with food or an eating disorder is, uh, how should I respond as a parent? Do I change what I buy at the market? Do I lock the cabinets up? Do I like just go on a full blitz? And you know what is what should be my role as a parent in this whole process? Absolutely. So parents are such a crucial part of the treatment team, and so more involvement is always recommended (laughs) you know I have some parents how much should I if I'm going to make things worse if I'm overly involved you know I think the word involvement versus control or you know there's differentiate differentiating factors there right we don't want to feel like we've taken over full control of that child's life I mean in some cases that happens but Rather, inserting yourself into the oversight of meals, making sure that meal is getting eaten, it's getting prepared. I'm working with my child to plan balanced meals that 
are being recommended by my dietitian so that my child is getting all the nutrients that their body needs to restore its its health. We mentioned before scales, like absolutely, I always instruct parents get the scales out of the house. It can be such a ritualistic compulsive behavior for teens of measuring their body weight and when this is such a big piece of that eating disorder, if they're continuing to have access to things like scales at home, it's just going to delay and potentially set them so far back in recovery if, if they're tracking that number because part of you know, the nature of, of some of the eating disorders is this desire to maintain a low body weight. And I, I love that you're talking about this. So one is, as a parent, we can take on some responsibilities, consult with a dietitian like yourself to say, hey, what are healthier meals I can make at home? What are correct portions? What is that a healthy eating schedule? We could certainly role model that. Yeah, so I am a big believer in meal planning together, parent and child sitting down, planning the meals out for the week together. Where, And it might be more on the parent in the beginning than it is on the child, and it might shift as time goes on where the child takes a more active role in that. It's so individualized. However, the, the commonality is, yeah, parents, like, it's you're so crucial to be helping with this piece of getting these meals balanced so that your kid's getting all the right nutrients. And again, this is done with assistance with your registered dietitian. It's you know, a big crucial part of the, the care process of how much does my child need to be eating, how often, you know, what types of food groups and mm-hmm. so forth. And so that, that's a huge thing. And, and So if you're overwhelmed by it as a parent, see, there's lots of people out there, a registered absolutely. dietitian yeah. who have expertise in this field. Yeah, this is not all on parents by themselves to have to think up meal plans and how much does my kid need. That's where we rely on the expertise of a dietitian with eating disorder experience to to help with that. But yeah, meal planning is huge. Having that food available in the house. Again, everything's so individualized. In the case of binging episodes, we might need to remove some of those binge foods temporarily from the house if it's something we're working on getting under control. Um, personally, I don't recommend locking up cabinets, but it's not to say that in some cases that's not needed for, for certain populations. Right, right. Boy, it's such great information, Liz. I really appreciate that. Um, well, just a few more things I wanted to touch on is that uh, there's this, you mentioned a psychological component to this whole thing. Um, I haven't touched a lot on it about the complexities of like a scale and seeing a number and it gets uh, very convoluted because body dysmorphia, maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah. If you're a parent and you're saying, well, we're gonna take the scales away or why is the number important to you? And you're trying to be rational about this. You could talk about, th- they're really in an irrational place about. Oh, absolutely. Maybe yeah. talk a little bit about that. As, as a parent, I, I maybe I'm underestimating what level of, when we have body dysmorphia stuff, at what level is there some irrationality around it? I mean, I've worked with clients where they're checking their body weight 10 times a day and even seeing an ounce up go up on that scale is can create a complete meltdown emotionally for them. And like I you know, that alone just really emphasizes like how distorted those thoughts can be towards body weight and even an, an ounce, a half a pound, something minimal that an irrational thought we wouldn't register as anything, can be really significant in the moment for that person. Um, 
yeah, I mean, scales, There's there tends to be this, like, relationship that a lot of, of these patients have with their scale. And it can be a really emotional thing when you take away the scale. It can feel like a sense of, uh, like, a loss. Because what, do, what does that number on the scale represent? I, mean, you ta- I like yeah. that you use th- yeah. this relationship. I wonder, give us some insight as a, as a, as a parent of a child or somebody what happens if I step on that scale and it's up or down? What, what happens to me? What do I experience? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, that number generally represents my self-worth as a human for a lot of them. So, you know, I might have, I, I always ask my patients, do you have a goal weight in mind? What do you, what's, what weight's going to make you happy? Because that tends to be where they equate, like, if I could just reach this weight, mm-hmm. I'll be happy. All my problems will go away. And they truly believe it in that moment. And so the interesting thing that happens is, hey, I meet that goal weight maybe. Nothing magically changes. I don't suddenly my problems are not all gone and I'm carefree. Guess what happens? I have a new goal weight in mind. And so this, it just continues to perpetuate this obsession with continuing to lose weight for a lot where it can get really dangerous and furthermore why that that scale needs to go. So I always instruct parents that, you know, we don't talk about numbers. My care, t- the care team can be responsible for managing the the weighing weigh-ins of those patients, making sure we're tracking for safety reasons how your weight is progressing. But I'm not going to talk specifics with my patients ever. Nor should parents. Nor should the medical team. And so, you know, parents can be that advocate as well for their child when they say go take them to the medical doctor and say, hey. We would like a blind weight, meaning I don't want this weight to be discussed with my child. I don't want them to see it, so maybe mm-hmm. they need to step on the scale backwards. Maybe I need to put a piece of paper in front of the, the value that shows up on that scale. But it's such a crucial piece for, and I can't say blanket, every eating disorder. Right, you right. know, Sometimes it can be therapeutic to be involved in, in the weight monitoring. But generally in a teen population, especially in earlier stages of treatment or when we're working on weight restoration, Seeing that number is just going to set them so far back in recovery and potentially cause a full-on relapse. So what we're hearing, I'm so grateful for this, Liz, is that really if I'm a parent, please reach out and get some professional help because people like you have so much experience that they're going to shed some light on things I'm not even considering as a parent. Absolutely. And, you know, I think... parents like because it is so much information that I don't just have taught to me in parenting school right I mean you have to seek this information out and being an advocate for your child is is crucial and your care team is there to help educate you on that but as parents as well I always encourage them read books join support groups look at articles online you know immerse yourself in educating and getting more familiar with what really are eating disorders? You mentioned before is that many people might think that this is this primarily fits a certain population, that this is, oh, this is an upper middle white glass kind of issue. Maybe, uh, and my question is, how is this eating disorders affecting diverse populations in your experience? Yeah, and that's such a great question. You know, I to this day have people tell me like, oh, well, that's only like a, a rich white person illness, right? And, you know, I want to pull my hair out when I hear that because it's just not true. We're seeing such a growing emergence, especially in subpopulations that experience more, 
discrimination and microaggressions in, within their community. So like the LGBTQIA community, for instance, mm. very prevalent um, in African-American communities and Asian-American communities and Native communities. So it, eating disorders don't discriminate by by your race, by your ethnicity. It's it's probably more that we're just becoming more aware and normalizing this for a lot of different populations. You know, there's lots of research out there, but really having us having an awareness that, you know, if it's the BIPOC community, if it's the LGBTQIA plus community, I mean, even in young children, if, if we don't really consider what is the impact, especially the anxiety, the depression, because those communities are actually seeing higher rates of eating disorders than I think many of us are even estimating that they're yeah, experiencing. I definitely believe that. I, yeah. I think it's just there's poor access to care for a lot of people or there's that word shame you mentioned earlier. That can be huge that, you know, I maybe I went to a doctor and said, I you know, I'm struggling with food and I've unfortunately heard this too many times. That doctor might respond, oh, no, your, your weight is normal. You don't have an eating disorder or boys don't get eating disorders. I mean, I've, I've heard these things and oh it's so invalidating for that person. And more than likely, they're probably not going to share that again with someone because they've just been made to feel shameful for even bringing it up or that they're they're wrong for feeling that way. And so, you know, I think that definitely contributes to a lot of underdiagnosis as well. So we, we've been talking um, today, Liz, about uh, f- focusing on adolescents and young adults primarily. I do want to highlight we've also talked about really systems and roles of, of families and parents. I know even in myself, I'm taking away right now, wow, how can I really even look at maybe my, my own as a parent, my own relationship with food? Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what does that mean for my children and my own relationship with food? What, what would you say to parents when it comes to? Yeah, so parents, like, you know, I have a whole general do's and don'ts of communication when it comes to eating disorder talk in the household. And a big, big one is really taking an inside look at my own body image as a parent. How am I demonstrating or my relationship with my own body. Am I saying things like, oh, I'm, you know, I shouldn't eat that. It's, you know, I don't need that. I'm looking to lose weight, whatever. Comments like this. While parents might think, well, it's not directed at my kid. I'm talking towards myself. What we're not seeing is our kids are really taking what they're hearing, internalizing it, and attributing that to their own body image and their relationship and, and thoughts towards food. And this is not to say that parents are the cause of eating disorders. I want to make that clear because that's in the past, way back when, is what was said. that Oh, parents cause eating disorders. That's not the case at all. However, as parents, we can illustrate healthier relationships with our own food, body image, to be good role models for our kids struggling with the same thing, to help teach them a different way of thinking. You know, there's interesting statistics showing that the body image, you know, poor Body image in, in mothers has a huge impact in the perceived body image of their child. So we know there's a definite uh, relationship I, there. I think I saw a statistic was actually almost 34% was linked to hereditary issues. Yeah, yeah genetics with, are big. Eating disorders. Definitely, so yeah. we're talking about a transgenerational <laughs> type yeah. of thing tied to anxiety. Definitely. So. 
Yeah. Liz, this has been so helpful. I, I, I just like, to, you know, sort of as we close this out, is there anything that you'd really love for parents to take away with them? Like if you leave with a few things here, here's what I want you to leave with. A big one for me, really, that I love to just educate anyone on is let's try to remove some of that food labeling talk that we all tend to do. We're all maybe guilty of it, right? But labels such as good, bad, healthy, unhealthy, and instead trying, I always try to emphasize more neutral language as it surrounds to food. Because a lot of times what happens if I label a certain food as bad and now I'm eating that food, now I've become inherently bad myself for consuming that food and it can play a big role on my, my own you know perception of myself as a person my self-worth my value and so you know trying to instead focus on hey what nutrients can that food provide me you know again I'm big on education so I love teaching my clients about food groups and what we get from those food groups and when we're choosing to eat maybe we do want a donut for that meal and all food fits in my philosophy of, of working with my clients. Like, what does that donut provide us in that, that instance? Can it provide some nutrients? I'm not saying I would recommend donuts every day for every meal by any means because they lack other nutrients. But the point is we're trying to neutralize and remove those labels because that's such a big part of, of the eating disorder, of rules set around what I can and cannot eat and if I disobey those rules those feelings of shame of guilt of potentially worsening anxiety depression Um, and another big one too is um, you know just being mindful of what we're talking about in the home environment Mm -hmm. right we talked about you know trying to avoid language negative language around our own bodies but that's also talking about in general I I tell parents to avoid lots of conversations about diets, about weight loss, about exercise plans. Um, Again, may be seemingly harmless sounding for many, but what's happening when our teen is hearing these messages about so-and-so's on a diet and they're losing all this weight and they look so great, especially for a teen with, with eating disorder that's internalized as there's a lot that starts clicking in their head when they hear these things of, maybe I should be on a diet. If that person's losing weight, maybe I need to lose weight. And so while we can't control what comes out of everyone's mouth, if we can control some of that dialogue at home, but if we can minimize the language that can be potentially triggering for our teens, triggering meaning that might increase my urge to want to restrict more food, to go over exercise, to purge, whatever that might fit, that behavior might look like for your teen. And it's different for all these types of conversations can definitely have a huge impact on on those types of urges and and triggering them fantastic great takeaways liz super super informative helpful there's professional help out there there is yeah just like you and certainly doorways offers an opportunity if a parent had a question could they send you an email or what's a good way if a parent had a question about this specifically hey I'd like to reach out to Liz absolutely I would say you know find a location that's going to work for you first and foremost I I'm in central Phoenix area I would love to work with anyone that has questions but um, yeah reach out to doorways counseling center we're in Phoenix or find other eating disorder treatment centers if 
if that's what you need based on where you live. But yeah, the, the takeaway is, is get the help that, that your teen needs sooner than later. And uh, this podcast is a good start to getting some information. Do you, would you uh, have any book recommendations or any resources that you, you tend to give to parents? Off the top of your head. Yes. Yeah. I love as part of the educating piece, I love parents to get immersed in that. So depending on what their child is maybe struggling with, I do have some favorites that I like um, parents to read. You know, there's a great one written by two dietitians about how to nourish your child through an eating disorder that really kind of gets into the specifics of, of helping with the basics of meal planning and emphasizing the importance of, of finishing those meals. And just kind of giving parents that toolkit. What's the name of that book? How to Nourish Your Child Through an Eating Disorder. How to Nourish Your Child Through an Eating Disorder. Yes, Great. yeah, using the plate-by-plate approach that I'm a big believer in myself. I really love Jenny Schaefer is actually a recovered um, anorexic patient that has written several books that are fantastic, especially to get into the mindset of someone who had struggled with an eating disorder and is now on the side of recovery and can reflect back on her journey and provide hope for those that maybe aren't quite there yet, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, but it's a long process. So I I love a lot of her books. Life Without Ed is fantastic. If parents that like to get real into the complexities of all the medical consequences of eating disorders, you know, I have a plethora of books that I I recommend for, for that as well. Great. And maybe we'll put some of those resources up on the website, which, yeah, would, which would be great. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Liz, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I know this me. is a, just an incredibly relevant topic and as parents everywhere and just as even as caring people, this is an ever-growing issue and it's tied to anxiety, depression. I mean, we're seeing all yeah. sorts of ramifications of suicidality. It's all connected. And so if we can have effective treatment for part of this, and um, I just want to leave parents with this thought of the relationship and establishing those secure relationships are really a a key essential in this whole treatment process. Parents are an essential part of the treatment team process. They are. They absolutely are. Great. Well, thanks for your time today. I want to say thanks for joining us. Please subscribe wherever you access podcasts. If you have any questions for us, we'd love to hear from you. Submit those at asktherapist at embarkbh.com. You can also go to doorwaysarizona.com to access the information. So on behalf of Liz and myself, thank you for joining us.